Hello, friends. Welcome to another episode of Le Vital Core Salon. I'm your host and salonier, Kara Snyder, and I am so fortunate to be able to have conversations with whip-smart women from all different industries and get to hear how they're navigating bullshit and burnout and how they're leaving their own unique stain on the world. I'm so grateful for this experience. One question I get a lot is, how do you choose guests for the podcast? The truth is, I often randomly stumble into them when I'm out and about in the world, or I stumble onto their work, usually when I'm reading something. Craig has tried many a times to extract whatever guest curation algorithm that I'm running in my head, but most days it's often a vibe or a feeling. It's usually more heart and gut than brain for me. And sometimes friends like Brandy Morris send me an article headlined, Meet Jingmei O'Connor, the punk rock paleontologist. Well, that was a super easy hell yeah for me to reach out. Let me tell you a little bit about Jingmei O'Connor. She's a professor at the Institute of Vertebrate Paleontology and Paleoanthropology, or IVPP, you'll hear us talk about. And that's part of the Chinese Academy of Sciences in Beijing. She grew up in Pasadena, California, and did both her undergraduate and graduate studies in Los Angeles. And y'all, she studied flying dinosaur birds. Okay, she's got some more scientific way of explaining it, but yeah, flying dinosaur birds. After knocking out her PhD, she moved to Beijing, China, where she has been working for the past 10 years and became the IVPP's youngest full professor in 2015. Her research explores the evolution of flight in the dinosauria, the dinosaur bird transition, and the biology of stem avians. Jingmei is also a super strong advocate for data sharing and equality in science. Now, you don't need to be a paleontologist to enjoy this episode. We talk about a whole lot more than just flying dinosaur birds. We talk about dispelling misconceptions, defying expectations, life in China, media spin, and transferable lessons from surviving academia. Without any more dawdling around by me, meet Jingmei O'Connor. Hey Jingmei, welcome to La Vital Core Salon. I'm so psyched to have you here. Hi Kara, thank you so much for having me. There are so many things I feel like you're going to teach me and my tribe today, and this is super exciting. Awesome. Well, I hope you guys, uh, you know, don't get overwhelmed by all my long dinosaur names. Just uh... <laughs> <laughs> we won't. We'll we'll try to hang with you. Speaking of those long names, in my humble opinion, like you literally win the prize. Like when I was doing all of the prep and the research for this episode. There were so many things that I literally had to sound out like a kindergarten kid. But if I'm distilling everything down correctly, you study the evolution of flight as dinosaurs evolved into birds. And I want to know a lot more about flying dinosaurs and how you came to study them all over the world. Which direction should we go first? I guess the way I started to study flying dinosaurs uh, came actually from new understanding within paleontology, because originally I just studied birds, and for a really long time, birds were the only flying dinosaurs. But within the period of time that I've been a paleontologist, which is like 10 years 
post having my PhD and five years as a PhD, so 15 years total. Like during this time, we've come to realize that actually flight evolved in dinosaurs maybe three, even four times. And this is probably still like a conservative number. And I think in the next 10 years, we'll probably like, you know, discover more instances of flying dinosaurs. So, um, you know, because all these other animals that we now know are flying and our independent origins of flight have features evolved to help them fly better, they kind of seem very bird-like, right? So before we were kind of trying to you squish all these different animals onto like one lineage of evolution from dinosaur to bird. So, you know, so anybody who was studying birds would also be looking at these animals. And now we know that they're all different independent origins of flight, but I was like, well, what the heck? I might as well, you know, (laughs) still study them. (laughs) So how did you start with birds? Well, first I, I discovered paleontology in college, which is pretty late for, you know, your average paleontologist. Most of them have like, you know, harbored this passion for fossils and usually just dinosaurs, like in their hearts since they were like little kids, right? Um, But my mom's a geologist, so I got interested in geology first, and then I went to college and I took this class uh, and it talked about evolution. I was like, wow, evolution's so cool, so I wanted to study paleontology. And then uh, as an undergrad, I was studying mammals, and I always like to say that I'm a equal opportunity, you know, fossil enthusiast because, you know, (laughs) there's these paleontologists who are like, just like dinosaurs, dinosaurs, dinosaurs. And like, you know, I don't know, like the non-dinosaur paleontologists are kind of like, you know, fuck you. (laughs) Just like (laughs) they get all the attention and they get all like, you know, a lot of the grant money. And so there's like, I just don't want to like harbor any like resentment between like within the field of paleontology. So, you know, I love all fossils and I have like, you know, a fossil trilobite and ammonite tattooed on my wrist. So, you know, I always like point to them. I'm like, I like inverts too. Too, you know. But anyway, so um, yeah, so then, you know, you apply for grad school and of course you apply to multiple programs, right? And when you're applying to a program, you're really applying to work with a specific person and that person is going to dictate what you're going to study, right? Because everybody has, you know, is extremely specialized. So uh, yeah, I applied to all these different programs and I had like three different choices of what I could work on. And my choice to work on birds was really uh, a practical choice at the time. I was like, you know, like all these amazing discoveries of flying, you know, feathered dinosaurs and birds were coming out of the early Cretaceous of China. And it was like a big thing in paleontology at that time and like a new thing. So I was like, oh, you know, I'm going to like ride this wave and like study all these new, really exciting fossils. And this is going to be helpful for getting a job in the future, which like, you know, I hate to admit that because usually I'm not such a practical person. (laughs) But uh, in the end, like, um, you know, somebody actually like pointed it out to me that that was like a really stupid decision because when people are hiring a paleontologist, they're like, they either want a mammal paleontologist or a dinosaur paleontologist. And of course I'm always like, birds are dinosaurs, but they're like, yeah, but you know, we want like dinosaurs, you know, like big <laughs> bad dinosaurs. So it's actually really hard to get hired as a, you know, paleontologist who studies fossil birds. Uh, most paleo, like paleoornithologists work in the modern bird collection, and then they just also study fossil birds. But I don't know shit about modern birds. Okay, I mean, I know like <laughs> half a turd about modern birds. But like, you know, there's in between 9,000 and 18,000 species of living birds. And I know that's like a huge range of estimates. So you're like, what's going on there? But anyways, there's a lot of birds, you know, so it's, there's just such an enormous amount of data out there. And I really am not very comfortable with it. But anyways, but, uh, you know, because I went to China, and I stayed in China, it's like, 
basically the one place in the world where you could be successful studying fossil birds because there's so many of them. You know, if I had stayed in America, there'd be nothing to study, basically. If you wanted to study Mesozoic birds, there's like, you know, just a, a couple of bone fragments, you know, and like uh, you just certainly wouldn't be getting nature papers trying to publish that kind of stuff. But anyways, yeah, I went to China because I love China and, you know, I have family there and just all these personal reasons. Yeah, I always meant to, you know, travel the world and like I wanted to do a postdoc in Berlin and I wanted to do a postdoc in Rio de Janeiro and I wanted to go all over the world. But, you know, I just really fell in love with life in Beijing and with my job there and uh, I never left. Because what is so specific to Beijing and China in terms of fossil birds? Well, there's this one region. Uh, well, it's like Liaoning province has these fossils that are you know, it's like two different pot deposits. One is late Jurassic. It's about 165 to 160 million years old. And there you have like the oldest feathered dinosaurs and you have some dinosaurs that are near or at the cusp of evolving flight. And then in the same region, you have another block of rocks that go from 131 to 120 million years old. And both these like big chunks of rock, you know, like they're, you know, meters, like tens of meters thick, right? Uh, they uh, both represent lake deposits. And so lake deposits are what we call a taphonomic window for the preservation of birds because birds are extremely delicate. I mean, if you're going to fly, you have to have a small body size. And in order to facilitate flight, birds have evolved to have hollow bones. So as a result of this, like their skeletons do not survive in the fossil record very well. But lakes are like this really low energy type of sedimentary, like uh, depositional environment that, you know, allows really, really delicate things like birds, fossil birds to be preserved, right? But it's not just that because, um, you know, if it was up to just paleontologists collecting birds, I mean, we'd have a lot. We'd still have more than the rest of the world. But in Liaoning, you have actually have a lot of farmers who have, like, given up farming and become fossil collectors. So, you, I mean, and there's, like, a lot more farmers than there are paleontologists, right? So because of, you know, all these locals working in these deposits, they've produced collections that are enormous, like, you know, 200 of this one dinosaur and, uh, you know, another 200 of this other flying dinosaur and 1,000 of this, you know, early Cretaceous bird and et cetera, et cetera. So you just have, you know, collections that you have nowhere else on earth. And uh, there you're able to distill like all sorts of information that you can't normally find out about an animal when you only have like two skeletons or three skeletons. And also when you have like such huge numbers, you tend to have really rare traces like ingested remains or soft tissues. They appear more common. I mean, if you really look, if you really look at the percentage in which they're preserved, it's still a very small percentage, but you have like a thousand Confucius soreness and you have 10% that preserve soft tissue, which means that you have like several hundred, you know, and like, mm -hmm. so then you, you, there's just all these amazing things that you can find out about these animals. So yeah, it's a really, really amazing place to work. So I have to ask, like, what is a typical day or week at work like for you? Because in my head, I'm thinking like Indiana Jones, right? I mean, that's about the extent of my my knowledge of the <laughs> the workings yeah. of paleontology. He's an archaeologist, actually. Is he? <laughs> and 
Yeah, he's an ant. Well, within anthropology, he would be an archaeologist, and this is something that paleontologists like get all the time. So if I, you know, like you're in a bar or whatever, and somebody's like, "So what do you do?" and I'm like, <laughs> "I'm a paleontologist," you know, and I usually get one of two responses. Like 99% of the time, people respond with one of two things, and one is like, "Oh, you're an archaeologist?" And I'm like, "I just said." Paleontologist, like, oh, no, no, you're right. I'm an archaeologist. My bad. Like, I mean, seriously. And then the other half of the time, they're just like, oh, like Ross from Friends, and you're like, God damn it. But uh, yeah. <laughs> but <laughs> so, what is a, a day in my in my life? It's actually um, it's going to be pretty boring. I hate to disappoint you guys. Like, most of the time, I'm just sitting in front of my computer, like banging away on my keyboard. And uh, yeah, I mean, to the point that like I usually all the letters on my keyboard are missing, and sometimes like there's even holes in the keys because I'm just like <laughs> typing so much, and I have long nails. So, <laughs> but um, yeah, and then of course, like paleontologists, we do go in the field to look for fossils. But I just told you that all the fossils I study are collected by farmers, farmers right? right. <laughs> so, yeah, so I don't really get to do that that much. Um, but of course, like I still want to go in the field. It's a lot of fun. Like. The thrill of discovering something is—it's really amazing. It's almost like a drug, you know. Like you, when you're—you know—you have to turn in for the day and go back to camp because it's getting late, you know. And I'm just like, one more, one more, I gotta find one more, you know. <laughs> it's just—it's yeah, it's—it's it's really this addictive drug-like thrill. Um, but anyway, so yeah, I—I I just have a lot of friends who invite me on their expeditions because you know I'm a hard worker and fun to have around. And there's always like other people who don't know me on the expedition, and they're like, "Why are you here? We're not gonna find any birds." And I'm just like, "Well, you know." By the end of it, they, by the end of the expedition, they get it. But uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so you I, infuse uh, some life into what could be a very stale working environment. Yeah, well, I mean, like paleontologists are—they're interesting people. Like, I know, like sometimes they can be really nerdy, and maybe to like the average layperson, they're not that interesting. But you know, most of my colleagues, I really enjoy. Well, help dispel some of those myths when you're like, yeah, they can come off as kind of boring. Like, why Why would that be? I mean, I'm sort of fascinated. You have like a whole head full of like all of this amazing knowledge that I probably wouldn't be able to comprehend without years of study, like fully appreciate the work that you do. So to me, it doesn't sound boring. It sounds kind of amazing. But maybe it's because I don't do such specialized like geeky work well it's like you know okay so i was just at the society of vertebrate paleontology meeting it's an annual meeting and, and this year it was in uh, brisbane and uh yeah you know i'm hanging out with all my colleagues they're all paleontologists and you know we're at a bar or whatever and like the, the paleontologists i hang out with we're not talking about fossils all the time we're just <laughs> you know like we're just hanging out like normal friends but then there are some paleontologists who they're wearing tevas and they're wearing field clothes all the goddamn time. And all they want to talk about is dinosaurs or whatever they study. And there is an art to be able to distill what you work on and make it interesting to the average person. And it's something that, you know, I'm not going to say I'm great at, but I've definitely improved on. Like my little sister used to make fun of me all the time and be like, you know, just jargon, so much jargon. Like, And you also have to know what about your research is interesting to other people and how to spin it so that it's interesting. And so, like, I mean, if you write nature papers, this is something you inherently have to know how to do, right? Or you have to learn how to do it, even if it's not inherent. And I mean, for me, it wasn't inherent. When I first got my PhD, I remember somebody actually telling me, like, you do not know how to write a high-impact paper. But now I do it a lot. So you know how to take 
something and spin it to a wider audience because nature is for all scientists and you have to make it, you know, appeal to all scientists. But yeah, a lot of other paleontologists, they don't have that and they just like to hang out with other paleontologists and they only talk and like nerd talk all the time. And I think it can be, you know, tiring to average people, especially because it's almost like they're talking down. Like if you're talking in this secret language that nobody else can understand because you're using all this jargon, that's like, you know, it seems like you have this attitude of like, right? I mean, I think that sometimes people can at least feel that way. I don't know. But um, yeah, but paleontology is not all these people, you know, it's definitely like, a majority, maybe like 60%, I don't know. But now in the 21st century, paleontology is really evolving, you know, with all these new scientific techniques that we have, like using synchrotron radiation to do CT scans. And like CT scans, it's basically just like a 3D x-ray. But if you use a synchrotron to do it, you can get extremely high resolution. You can even see cells and that kind of thing. And, you know, there's people from, you know, who do physics or engineering or chemistry, and they're applying their field to the study of fossils in order to extract information that we've never been able to extract before. So paleontology is like, it's really evolving. And as a result of that, you have all sorts of new people in the field, you know. But of course, like the stereotype is going to persist forever because, I mean, it's just, it's a certain type of person who likes to be out in the field for like months at a time and be really dirty and blah, blah, blah. And like, let me tell you, that is not me. I like to go in the field, but for like, two weeks, you know, like if I, <laughs> I'm in the field for a month, I definitely go crazy towards the end. I'm like, Oh, I'm going to kill everybody. Um, yeah. And I definitely wouldn't want to feel like the month, a month is my max, you know? So like, you know, we need all types. Like I'm the kind of person who's just banging away on their computer and can like publish a ton. Cause I just have like, you know, ideas and I'm really good at connecting the dots like in between different fossils but then there are some people who are really good at finding fossils and extracting them from the earth and there's people who are really good at cleaning them up and you need to have every different type of person in order to make this whole field work. So I'm hearing from the work that you do you are connecting the dots and you're you've really figured out how to tell stories in your work. How did you figure out that was a sweet spot for you? Hmm, that's an interesting question. I, it's it really just you know developed with time. Like like I said, when I first started, you know, trying to spin these fossils, I, I really was not good at it. But you know, when you have a new specimen and you are under pressure to publish in really high ranking journals, you have to look at the specimen and be like what is important about this? How do I spin it? And this is actually something my PhD advisor had told me was important, but I wasn't necessarily good at it as a grad student. And I even resented it a little bit. I was like, no, like science should be pure and like, you shouldn't have to do this shit. And like, I don't know, but then you come to China and you're given these like amazing specimens and there's pressure to get them published in really high ranking journals. So then you have to, you know, like, you know, even though the specimen might be really amazing, you might not get it into nature or whatever, some high ranking journal, if you don't spin it right. You know, like, it's not just the specimen, it's how you present it. So yeah, and I don't know. Yeah. And because of all this pressure, it just I had to get good at it. And now, you know, I really enjoy it. I'm sort of smiling as you're talking about this, because I just finished a user experience design boot camp, and I'm trying to move my career in that direction. And it's funny because it's such a like a meta experience because you're looking at like user experience design for the people and the projects that you're working on. And then at the same time, every time you're delivering a presentation to a client or to the class or whatever, it's like we always joke that we're like UX in 
all of our stuff, right? So it's like we're taking our presentation and then trying to think like, what does the person on the other side of this presentation really need to understand when we're holding all of this qualitative research in our head? Yeah. And the other, you know, the problem and the, I think the biggest difficulty is like, especially, you know, in a in a scientific paper, you can get as nerdy as you want. But when you're trying to present it to a specific audience, like, uh, for example, I volunteer and give talks to like second grade children or, you know, even I've like given a talk in like a bar before, like to, you know, just anybody who was interested in dinosaurs or whatever. And also, you know, I teach at the University of the Chinese Academy of Sciences. And when you're trying to present information to these people, different groups, like you have to simplify it so that they can understand it. But there's a fine line between simplifying something and it becoming no longer accurate. And like that is a really, really difficult line to, to walk. You know, like they teach us in school, like, oh, all the dinosaurs went extinct because of the, um, you know, the uh, meteor impact, right? And that's just a gross oversimplification. But rather than, you know, tell you the truth, which is far more complex. They're like, oh, people can't handle that. And they just like give you a simple story. I mean, but like, this is, you know, something that's true, like across all of society. And, you know, and it's true of all knowledge, like, you know, they tell you, like, you know, don't let your dog eat chocolate, right? Well, it's actually like the same, like, if you were to say to all humans, like, nobody can eat peanuts, you know, because it's just some dogs have an allergy to chocolate. But rather than, you know, figure out if your dog's allergic to chocolate or not, they're just like, nobody feed dogs chocolate because they don't need to eat it, you know. And it's just like, you know, so, so like, yeah. And uh, and it always, it's really hard for me because I love the truth. You know, I'm a very honest person, even to like, you know, the point of it being a bad thing. <laughs> but so it, it's really hard. Are you a fan just... of brutal honesty too? <laughs> oh yeah. No, I'm like when keeping it real goes wrong. That's like the story <laughs> of my life. <laughs> but I also think that like there's not enough brutal honesty in this world, you know? And so like somebody has to be, you know, the cunt and just, you know, be like, hey, you suck. And uh, yeah, I mean, I think if more people did that in a constructive manner, that we'd see greater changes where we want them, you know, but uh, yeah. <laughs> Amen. I feel like I really resonate with your quote about getting it wrong. Because I think in my 20s, I just said whatever was on my mind, whether people wanted my opinion or not. And I think as <laughs> I've gotten older, I've learned I can actually help it sink in and have a somewhat productive conversation and still be honest if I just set it up a little bit better. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I've learned not to like give unsolicited opinions, but if it's solicited, oh, I'm going to give it to you. you know? <laughs> <laughs> I think that's why for years so many people have asked me, can I ask you a random question? Because I think they know that I'm going to either ask 15 questions back in return to make sure that I fully understand what they're really asking me. And if they really want my opinion or they just want me to listen. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. that's. Yeah, I'm not so good at, at the listening, but I understand it's really important and I'm definitely trying to be better <laughs> at it. So I have to ask, like, when you're trying to distill all of this information down and still keep it factual and still keep it, like, present it in a way that's still accessible to people, like, what do you find helpful? Like, how do you parse that out? You have to figure out what is the purpose of you communicating with a particular group, right? So if I'm teaching at the UCAS, then it needs to be accurate, right? But you have to limit the amount of information you give so that you can do each subject 
true justice, right? But if you're just talking to, you know, second graders, then you can just tell them general stories that, yeah, maybe there's, you know, they're not perfectly factual, but the point is to excite them about a general concept like evolution or preservation of fossils or something like that. But it's, it is difficult and it's something that I, I don't really have figured out yet. It's something I'm still in the process of learning because I really don't get the opportunity to do this that often. You know, like when I teach, when I say I teach at the UCIS, I teach for two days a year. And, you know, when I say that I've like talked to little, you know, kids in elementary school, I've also done it like two or three times. <laughs> Whereas, uh, unfortunately, in China, outreach is not something that's really um, like demanded of scientists the way that it is in America. But at the same time, I realize that it's very important. So I volunteer to do it when I can. But it's the opportunities are still like they're not very numerous. Got it. In terms of like doing your work, it sounds like you're behind a keyboard a lot. And for a couple of days a year, you're teaching out in the public. And then how often are you going out into the field? Just so we get a sense of like, how are you splitting your time up? Yeah, I, I guess uh, the second biggest um, investment of my time is going to conferences because, you know, I mentioned I love to travel. So even though I know it's so bad for the environment, I'm sorry, but um, I love traveling the world. So I go to a lot of conferences and every year I'm like, I'm going to go to less. It's too stressful. But then I'm, you know, then I find out about one like somewhere cool. And I'm like, oh, I got to go there, too. So I go to a lot of conferences. Maybe this year I went to four or five. I don't remember. I went to like South Africa for a conference, went to Australia for a conference, was in Spain for another one, um, another one somewhere else in China. Like, you know, a lot of traveling like that. And then I spend probably like 10 days to two weeks in the field. Um, recently, I've been going to Romania with a team from the American Museum of Natural History. And uh, I love going to the field with them because like they have money, you know, <laughs> so it's like you enjoy the field, you know, it's work hard, play hard, like they understand that the, you know, the army marches on its stomach, you know, and so they feed you well. And uh, this was definitely not the experience when I was in grad school, uh, going in the field with my advisor. I've heard it's changed now. So I don't want to talk shit. But yeah, I mean, it was miserable. And I hated it. <laughs> so wait, for us non paleontologists, talk about like, what is life in the field like? What does it look like? What does it feel like? What does it smell like? Tell us all about you know, it. It really depends where you are. You know, if you're somewhere extremely remote, then it means you're camping and, you know, you're like after you wake up early in the morning, you make yourself breakfast in your camp and then you, you know, you pack a lunch and you spend like eight, nine hours just out prospecting, just wandering around looking for fossils. And then you come back in the evening like sunburned and exhausted and you know different teams have to make dinner for the night and then the other team has to like clean up the dishes and then everybody sits around a campfire and like maybe drink something and then you go to bed and you repeat and if this lasts for like an entire month you know it can it can get tiresome but it, that's my favorite type of field work when you're out prospecting which means you're looking for the fossils and then sometimes somebody will find something and then the entire team moves to quarrying or excavating this fossil out right and uh, that's even more tedious. I hate it because then you're just sitting <laughs> in one place and just like removing dirt, you know, and like, yeah, sometimes you're moving really fast when you're far away from the fossil. But as you get close to the fossil, you have to start moving really slowly. And I'll admit I'm not known for my patience. So I really <laughs> don't I don't appreciate this at all. I don't enjoy it. 
Um, but when you know, if your if your field locality is not very remote, then at least in China and also in Romania, we just we stay at some kind of like hotel, small kind of rural hotel, and they have a kitchen. And then you know, we're like in the field this year. We were like making uh, calzones and like you know. We- <laughs> good and we were you know buying local wine that was really delicious but also we worked really hard of course you know you have to earn it but yeah in China you know I remember when I first arrived in China and uh, I came to talk to my new boss and they had just finished their field work in Liaoning where all these fossils are from and uh, they were like yeah you know we were there for like 40 days and like no days off and every day we're just sitting in this quarry because like lacustrine deposits lake deposits are like just like finely bedded like shales and mudstones so you like take a big chunk of rock out and then you turn it on its side so like the uh, you know the bedding plane is perpendicular to how it was like not deposited because it'd be deposited flat right and then you like whack along the side and these layers will split open along a natural plane of weakness which is usually where there's biological organic material preserved but you know 99.9% of the time you like split the rock and it's plants or insects you know and it's like fossil birds and dinosaurs are extremely rare it's just you know because you have so many farmers digging for such a great period of time. That's why we had these huge collections. Anyways, this sounded like absolutely horrible to me. And I was like, and he, and my boss was like, yeah, you're going to come with us next year. And I'm like, oh God, you know, <laughs> then, uh, the next year was the, uh, the first year that we were no longer allowed to do field work in Liaoning because of all the local, you know, just like local bullshit. So like, you know, a Liaoning province, like Beijing is not in Liaoning province, but Beijing has basically the only, you know, really amazing vertebrate paleontology institute in all of china i mean there are some universities all over that do have paleontologists but really like the place to be is the ivpp and uh but you know liaoning didn't want the fossils like the treasures of liaoning as they call them they didn't want them leaving liaoning and going to beijing so all these bureaucrats made all this like you know this great wall of china of of red tape and made it so the the fossils could not come out and so if we can't take the fossils with us then we're not going to do the field work we're just going to buy them from farmers so that's what happened and so i never had to do field work there and i was just kind of like oh thank god you know but then um we were doing field work or another professor was doing field work also lake deposits so the same type of excavation but in a different part of china and also there's fossil birds and he was like jingmei do you want to come with me and i'm like oh i'm too busy and i mean i legitimately was too busy but then they were finding all these birds so my boss was like i'm gonna go and, and check things out and i'm like oh yeah i'll go with you just for like three four days sure <laughs> and then, like even three four days i was like two days in i was like i'm so bored i hate this like and i you know i was seeing their camp and uh in most you know everybody was staying at this farmer's house and i was just like ew like i would not stay here like ew you know like bed bugs ah (laughs) no so you know i was well i mean i don't know i nobody was saying there's bed bugs but like it looked like bed bug city to me but uh yeah so me and my boss because my boss at the time was the director of the ivpp so we were staying in in a nice international hotel like an hour drive from the actual locality but they were all staying like 10 minute drive from the locality in this farmer's house and uh, so, yeah, I mean, I, I'll admit it. I'm like, if you hang out with me, you'll definitely be like, uh, she's a goddamn princess. But I'm just like, yeah, I'm a princess. <laughs> like, I don't, I don't <laughs> camp. So I feel you. Yeah, I, love <laughs> camp- I love camping, but I'm not going to like stay in a dirty old farmer's house. Like, I, I mean, when I grew up, you know, in Pasadena, like I loved to go camping. That was like all the vacations my family took us on were, you know, camping because, you know, we didn't have a lot of money. So, yeah, that's what we did. We would go out and like usually my mom would turn one of her 
you know, uh, research trips, her geology, geology research trip, she would turn it like family vacation. Let's all go camping. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. And I used to go backpacking all the time when I was in, uh, still in California. It's something that I really miss being in, in China, but I just don't, you know, like this, this farmer's house is gross. It's dirty. <laughs> I'm like, I'm, I'm such a jerk. I sound like such a brat, but, um, I don't know. Like, you sound yeah. like someone who knows what she needs. <laughs> yeah. Right. Like, <laughs> I don't think we any of us have to apologize for like having certain likes and dislikes like you know your thing you know where that line in the sand is and you know yeah I can cross it for two or three days and that's good enough (laughs) well I mean if I had if I have my way then yeah I'll only do it for two or three days but if I have to go like I'll go you know like I will it's uh you know but it's just if it's not absolutely necessary then I'm going to make choices to you know keep myself in a situation that works best for me, I guess, you know, if that makes sense. Yeah. And it sounds like to me from the conversation that we're having, you know, there are people that love the field and dig that and just want to be there and doing this like painstakingly detailed physical work. Right. But then it sounds like you are so articulate and it sounds like you're able to like break things down and explain it and make it interesting which I mean I feel like that's like next level in terms of scientist right like I have some friends who are scientists so I get like when they go real deep and what they're excited about and just lose everyone along the way yeah it seems like knowing where your strengths are play into them and doing the things that like keep you recharged and fresh and able to stay in that zone is important yeah I mean like I said you need all types you know so I'm not you know like yeah, I don't like being in the field, but there's plenty of paleontologists who do love being in the field. And, you know, we we're, we're all have different strengths and weaknesses, and we all work together to make this field work, you know? Like, if it, like yeah, for me, I have farmers, but most places you re- rely on these people who love the field work and find all the amazing stuff. You know, if it wasn't for them, people like me who sit in their office all day, like, wouldn't have anything to do. So, you know, it's like, it's there's just, there's not one way that's better or worse. It's just different strokes for different folks, I guess. Absolutely. So when I'm hearing you talk about like the conditions of going into the field and like when you're younger and you're in grad school, like it, it might be a tougher experience. And then hearing kind of like what the options are now, it sounds to me, and I could be totally wrong, so you can feel free to correct me because I'm about to make a flying assumption that that you can punt back. You must have to really love this work to do this work. For sure. So what is it about you that that really excites you or surprises you? Well, I got interested in paleontology to begin with because the concept of evolution and how it works, I just found absolutely fascinating. And, you know, if you look at the the morphological diversity, like all the different types of animals that are alive today and all the weird ecological niches that they are have evolved into so like you know like tree sloths or you know bats or you know just like all these different animals that do such that have such there's such a diversity in form you know and how evolution produced this diversity I just found really you know just like such a cool thing to study so yeah I I, I, that's what drew me to paleontology initially but Paleontology is by nature a very exciting science. Like, you know, you're constantly finding new things that are completely changing the way you 
um, view evolution or you view your particular group. And I think this is true of all science. It's not just true of paleontology. If you're a chemist, you're discovering new, you know, um, you know, chemical properties of some, you know, well, okay, I don't know anything about chemistry, so I'm not going to use that analogy. <laughs> you know, the point is, like, you know, what I love about science is that, to me, it's like a frontier, you know, and you're you're an explorer and you're trying to figure out, you know, and you're exploring this frontier that is the edge of our understanding, right? And you're just, you know, coming back from this front frontier with new information to to contribute to the, you know, greater whole of like the knowledge of mankind, you know. Okay, obviously I have a very grandiose idea of what I'm doing, but <laughs> But it just, it's really, really cool. And, you know, like years ago, I thought, you know, maybe I don't want to be a paleontologist forever. Like, I can't imagine doing this for, you know, my whole life. But I think that was when I was still younger and had a more superficial relationship with my field, you know. And now that I've been doing it for 10 years, I'm just like, you know, it's so interesting. And there's just so many things that I want to study. And for every question that you attempt to answer, you basically just, you sort of answer it, but you also come up with like at least 10 new questions, you know, like the the search for understanding is never going to end. And it's just, it's really exciting. It's really cool. But um, I also think it's just my personality that whatever I'm going to do, I'm going to throw myself into and find a way to be passionate and excited about it. Because if not, you know, life is a lot more miserable. So, um, you know, I always joke that like, you know, people are like, oh, like, why do you study birds? And I'm, you know, or why do you like birds so much? And it's like, yeah, you know, I had no interest in birds before I started studying them. Since studying them, I've come to find them to be like really, really cool and interesting and fascinating group of animals. But I think that I would have fallen in love with any group that I had chosen to study. So what happens on the days you don't feel passionate about your work? I... You know, I work hard and I play hard. So, uh, you know, I hope none of my colleagues are listening to this. Huh? But I like I spend a lot of time <laughs> just like jacking off, like, you know, uh, hanging out with my family whenever I go home. You know, I do very little work and I'm just spending time with my family and I travel a lot. So I have a lot of downtime just in my schedule anyways. So when I am working, I'm working really hard. And then like there's just like no room for, you know, for anything in between, if that makes sense. So I'm just like naturally choosing to do a lot of fun things so that I always, you know, so that I, I guess, so my mind is like, I don't know, refreshed or something, but it's like, I'm not working all the time. So when I'm working, I'm enjoying it and I'm working. And then when I'm not working, I'm enjoying my life and doing something fun. But then when I'm done doing that, I'm like, now I have like a mountain of work piled up and I got to like throw myself back into it. So it's very rare that, um, at least recently that I've felt like, you know, like I don't want to do work and I'm not passionate about what I do. But yeah, in the past, I have felt that way. And when I did, you know, like, I think the best thing to do is just be kind to yourself and be like, you know what, I can force myself to try to get work done, but I'm not going to be productive. So I'm just going to like plop myself on the couch with my two dogs and watch some Netflix or something like that, you know, <laughs> but really like my schedule is, is really set up so that I haven't really felt that in a long time. Yeah, at least not in the last couple of years. So how have you set up your schedule to help that? Like, it sounds like you you get to a point where you know, like, all right, not productive, totally in the not productive zone. Got to get my act together and like get back into that place. How do you do that? Because I know a lot of women listening, you know, do work that they used to feel passionate about. And then 
some have gotten stuck. And I know just from the past 10 years of conversations with women as a health and lifestyle strategist, you know, some have have turned that around. So like what what helps set you up for success in that way? I don't know, but I find that, uh, you know, if I if I don't feel like working, you know, usually this happens when I come back from a vacation. And even though I know I, I really got to get back to work, I'm like, <laughs> uh, like you need a vacation. Inertia. Your vacation. <laughs> right. Like, you're just, yeah, you're exhausted. And so, you know, and I'm kind of like stressed out. Like, I know I should be working, but I don't feel like it. And so I just don't work. And then the next day, I'm like, I really know I should be working, but I just don't feel like it. So I just don't work. And then usually, you know, after a couple of days, I'm like, I just become ready, you know, you just, so I think it's just to, you know, listen to what your body needs, what your mind is telling you. And then everything will, at least for me, it just naturally precipitates. Like if I don't feel like working, okay, don't work. But I have that luxury. And I know a lot of people don't have that. Like most people, you know, it's like, if you don't want to work, like you have, I have to have a sickie from a doctor or you better be at work. Like you're going to get fired. Like that's not an option, you know? But for me, I, you know, like, Nobody is keeping tabs on what I'm doing. Nobody, I mean, I don't even go to the office most of the time. Like every one of my assistants has had to learn how to fake my signature because I'm like, I'm not coming in for that. Like, just fake it. <laughs> and, uh, and I just, I work from home, you know, most of the time. And um, so nobody knows if I'm working or not. And at the end of the year, when it comes to like how many papers we publish, because we always have to submit like a whole list of every paper the impact factor of the journal, blah, blah, blah. And then they like, you know, evaluate us. So at the end of the year, I'm always, you know, top five productive researcher at my institute, usually number one or number two. Like I publish usually like twice as many papers as anyone else, except for now there's a, a young researcher named Wang Min who also studies birds, who I helped train when I first showed up. And that guy, like he's just working all the time. And I don't think he has a life, but um, yeah. So now he's like, he's giving me a really good run for my money, but I'm like, you know what? Like, I don't think he's a very happy person. So I'm not going to try to compete with him. Like, you know, if he wants to beat me, that's totally fine. You know? So, um, yeah. So I know that my, what works for me isn't necessarily going to work for other people. And I know that I'm extremely, extremely lucky in the setup that I have and I'm very grateful for it. And I, and I, you know, so whenever my colleagues, you know, I, I meet them at SVP and they're like, damn, Jingmei, you published so much, you know, like, oh, I'm so jealous. Oh, you know, I feel bad about myself. I'm like, don't, you know, like, don't feel bad about yourself. Like I don't have to teach. I don't have to do any paperwork because it's all in Chinese. I don't have to participate in any bullshit meetings within the Institute because they're all in Chinese. So all I do is the research that I love doing. Like all the ugly parts of this job are like taken away from me. I don't have to do them. So it's just a really, really awesome situation for me in China. But I know that's not, this is not the normal situation for your average paleontologist. Like there is a lot of bullshit that comes with any job, you know, like all the office politics and like, you know, sitting in at a departmental meeting where some assholes like whining about like, you know, whoever's like leaving like their cups in the sink or, you know, how people, I mean, I don't know, like <laughs> just what I, I glean from like TV, you know, like I have but, a like, friend who's a scientist you know? like, and literally I have had a conversation about dirty dishes in the sink with her over the years because literally like they have to have departmental meetings because people aren't picking up the kitchenette yeah <laughs> so and that I know is there's not all, a stretch yeah and there's all this bullshit and there's always somebody who's like 
you know, just like yammering on and on and on about something that nobody else cares about. And you're just like, oh, let me shoot myself. But like, I mean, so I, I've been to like a meeting or two. So and even like during those meetings, like, you know, 10 minutes and I'm like shaking my leg really impatiently and just being like, shut up, shut up, shut up. You know, I want to go back to work. <laughs> but yeah, like uh, so all the negative parts of, of the job are just, you know, taken care of by other people. And I really appreciate that. Like, so I had this assistant who, you know, um, when I want to apply for grant money in China, like everything's in Chinese. So I will write like the main text of the grant. Like, this is what I want to study. This is how I'm going to do it. She has to translate it into Chinese. And then she has to fill out the rest of the application and submit it online, which takes a lot of time, you know? And I'm, I'm I like, you know, I tell her all the time, like, I could not survive here without you. I'm so grateful for you. And uh, yeah, you know, so whenever I go to America, I help her buy whatever she needs from America. So, you know, it's, it's, it's important to appreciate what people do for you and to give back. And uh, yeah, but you know, like, all the like grading papers. I don't have to do any of that shit. Like all the really, all the gross parts, you know, the only thing I have to deal with that is like maybe, you know, like my least favorite part of, of, you know, what I have to do for my job is, you know, when you submit a paper, it comes back with reviewer comments and you have to revise it and resubmit. So like the whole filling out, you know, submitting things online, filling out all these stupid forms, like that is a little bit annoying, but I mean like, you know, like I'll take it. Like if that's like the most annoying part of my job, then like I'm, I'm really lucky. You gave us such an awesome look at how you're navigating things. I have to ask, was it strategic? Did you find this kind of dream job where you don't have all of this administrative bullshit hanging on your shoulders? Or was it just dumb luck? It was dumb luck. Yeah, it just, it's something that I kind of like looked back. Like once I was, you know, here in China and I kind of looked back and I'm like, this is awesome, you know. But also I joke that I've like become like a savage because, you know, because I'm free to do whatever I want. I'm just like, you know, like Tarzan in the jungle or whatever. And I don't have to get along with other people. I mean, I like to get along with people, but I mean, I don't have to do all this like political, you know, nonsense where you have to like put up with people's crap. Like I'm not good at putting up with crap because, you know, I've never had to, you know, so if people like give me crap, I'm like, oh, hell no, you know? And uh, yeah, like I don't, you know, like I said, if I'm in the one meeting that I went to in the past 10 years, I've been here, like I got really bored and started like shaking my leg and glaring at everybody because I'm like, this sucks, you know? (laughs) So so I'm not like so good at all this like bureaucratic political stuff that you need to be able to do when you're working in a department, you know, but at the same time, like when I do interact with people, like people ask me to help them with their research or whatever, I'm, you know, I really like to, I play, play well with others on the scientific frontier, if that makes sense. Like I help students in any way I can. I'm happy to help my colleagues, but I, yeah, but I think in terms of like bureaucracy, I've, I've become a savage. (laughs) (laughs) Which could be amazing. Cause like you could be like the person who like, helps clean up that shit when it starts going totally awry because you're so finely tuned to not put up with it uh, are you trying to get me fired no, <laughs> <just> <laughs> no. Like, i went to america and i'm like oh let me clean up this shit they'd be like you're fired <laughs> get out <laughs> but it's like when you're not inoculated every single day to like bureaucracy and red tape it's almost like you're so super sensitive to it like you would spot it a mile away yeah, but bureaucracy, like, it wants, like, it is stronger than anything else. Like, bureaucracy in a institution is stronger than the science. 
You know, like an institution survives on its bureaucracy and they don't really care how amazing a scientist is. Like the bureaucracy is protecting itself and its institution. You know what I mean? Nowadays in America, they have a hiring committee. Like the most important person on that hiring committee is human resources. It's not the other scientists on the hum- on the committee who are like, who's going to be a good colleague for our department? No, 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 no. It's human resources, you know? So like... I'm just really glad that, you know, I don't have to deal with any of that stuff in China. But I, it is something that I think has made it like I've applied for jobs in America because, you know, I don't know, just as a safety net, I suppose. And uh, I've never even gotten an interview, despite the fact that I have like an amazing publication record. And I think it's because like I ha- like they know that I'm not going to be somebody that they can control easily, you know, like that I, you know, will say my opinions and like nobody wants to hear opinions, you know, in, in these bureaucratic institutions, like they don't care what you like, you have to play by the rules of the bureaucracy or else, you know, I know that's at least my hypothesis for it. Cause I mean, I definitely like have known for my like, you know, drunken disorderly behavior at SP, <laughs> you know, and uh, I'm sure that gets around and uh, I mean, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> But I know, like, my, you know, my boss, or, like, my former boss, like, Luis Chiappe at the LA Naturist Museum, so they hired a um, curator, a new curator, and when they were, you know, hiring, they were like, we want, a, you know, somebody who studies dinosaurs, but not birds, and I was like, well, okay, Luis, you know, so I didn't apply for this job, but, um, you know, they hired somebody, and, uh, you know, I was, like, me and some other, you know, PhD students were, like, talking about it, and we're like, oh, this person is, like, not so famous when it comes to their like research, you know, but then Luis was just like, that's not what we care about. We care about bureaucracy. Who's going to be a good administrator? Like, you know, and I was just like, Oh, well, if that's what you guys care about, I am never going to get a job in America. (laughs) That's fine. I have the best job ever in China. So like, who cares? (laughs) Do you feel like it limits your career? For sure. Yeah. Because like, you know, I can only co-supervise PhD students because all the paperwork's in Chinese. So there has to be a Chinese-speaking co-supervisor with me. And also, you know, in terms of publications, I, of course, do more like first author publications than most of my colleagues. But if you have a big lab with lots of lots of students, then all your students are churning out papers with your name on it, right? So if you like the more senior you become within paleontology, the bigger your lab underneath you becomes and the more papers that are coming out every year with your name on it. And this is something that's, you know, I have a very small lab. I mean, I do have, I have a postdoc and a PhD student and a master's student right now, but that's still fairly small. And, uh, you know, compared, I mean, in, in the IVPP, we don't tend to have these huge labs because we're not really connected with a university. So it's still less than somebody who would, you know, somebody who's a professor at a university will have like a ton of students, you know, but uh, yeah, it limits me in that way. Like I'll never have a big lab. I'll never, yeah, I'll, I'll always be limited in how many students I can have that kind of thing. But it sounds like it's a good trade off for you, like to have that freedom to sort of explore and not be encumbered by admin stuff. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I absolutely love it. It's like best fossils in the world, um, a ton of funding to do your research, which is something that's, you know, not very common in America and like complete freedom to do whatever I want, which is also like very, very rare. And I thought about doing a, a you know, like Luis at, in L.A., he offered me to do a postdoc back with him. Like I already been in China for a few years. He's like, you can come back from China, do a postdoc with me. And he was like, oh, but you know, if you work with me, then it's no more like flitting around doing whatever you want. You need to be here every day, signing in with your digital fingerprint, like nine in the morning, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, oh, Luis, you're really selling it. (laughs) I never went back. (laughs) Well, I I think 
hearing this reaction makes me laugh because part of the reason we're even having this conversation today is a friend of mine, Brandy, sent me an article about your punk rockiness in terms of the paleontology world. And I guess, you know, from pictures I've seen for people listening who don't have a visual, like you look like you're ready to either front a rock band or kick off a DJ set at like two in the morning. I guess it it makes me wonder, like, how does presenting yourself and like really being bold about it? Or I like to think of the line from Breakfast at Tiffany's, like being the top banana in the shock department. It seems like you're constantly like defying others' expectations of who a scientist is and how they should be living. How does that impact you? Well, I definitely think if I'd stayed in America, it would have been something that had really that would hold me back and maybe is also one of the factors why nobody would give me a job interview. <laughs> because despite, you know, what America likes to think of itself, it's still extremely conservative. But in China, nobody cares. Like I said, they don't care what I do and they don't care what I look like as long as I'm publishing lots of papers and making the institute look good and publishing in high ranking journals. So, uh, you know, I got my lip pierced on my first year in grad school and I told myself like, I'm going to take it out when I get my PhD, but I still have it, you know, like 15 years later, still have it because, you know, in Beijing, really nobody cares how I look. Nobody cares how I dress. I mean, as long as I'm not offending people and being nice to my colleagues, nobody cares how I act. You know, they don't even care if I'm in the Institute, you know, so I just have like complete freedom. And because I went to China where now, you know, the rest of the scientific community is just seeing my name on papers, right? And most people didn't even know that I was a woman, like, because they just, you know, I mean, that's kind of messed up, right? But they just assume that a successful scientist must be a man. And my name, I guess, Jingmei, I don't know, like, nobody could tell that it was a female name, and you can't blame them, you know? But then I, I reach a level where I'm a very respectable scientist, and now suddenly they see what I look like, they can't be like, oh, oh, oh wait a minute, we're going to take all that back. They can't, right? So, um, yeah, it was because, you know, being in China, having access to amazing fossils, publishing a lot, becoming one of the powerhouses in the study of, you know, para-avian evolution or like the evolution of birds and bird relatives within dinosaurs. And uh, now, like, you know, they just have to deal with me, I guess, you know, <laughs> but I, I never, I never set out to be like, oh, I'm going to like be different than everyone else. It just... I mean, I'm just who I am, you know, and uh, yeah, I've always, you know, my mom uh, always had her, you know, a very distinct style, very colorful, like, you know, lots of jewelry. And uh, me and my little sister are both very much like that. And uh, yeah, I mean, and I've always been that way, like even in grad school, like I actually got called into the human resources de department at the LA Naturist Museum and they were like, you can't dress like that. And I was, I was very, I, I was pissed. And I was like, show me your dress code. And they're like, well, we don't have one, but like, it's just like kind of known that you shouldn't dress like that. And I'm like, hey, guess what? I don't work for you. Like, you don't pay me. Uh, I get paid by USC. So like, eat a bag of dicks. But uh, yeah, I was really, I was, you know, but at the same time, even though when I was in the office, I was being really defiant. I was like, can't tell me what to do. But at the same time, they like, incepted me. They mind fucked me because after that, then I started 
thinking about what other people thought about me, you know, and then I just didn't feel comfortable dressing like that anymore because now I was aware that people are looking at me like and condemning me, you know, and then I just, yeah, I, I mean, I wasn't like strong enough to be like, well, I don't care. And I'm going to do it anyway. It's like, it just made me feel uncomfortable. And, you know, I was so, you know, you have to listen to what is your body and your mind is telling you what feels good. And it just didn't feel good anymore. And uh, so then I stopped wearing hot pants and mini skirts, which is probably a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm laughing because I had the you dress inappropriately for work conversation back when I was still an accountant early in my career and having a partner call me in. And it's like I already hated putting on a damn suit. Like I always felt like I was dressing up in a costume, like I was playing the part of a professional working woman in New York City, as opposed to actually just being one as I like schlep to the subway in my suit every morning and then I remember being in that office and having this like totally geeky like male partner, you know, talk to me about like the inappropriate color of my tights. And it was just like, are you kidding? Are you kidding? I'm like one of your highest chargeable associates in the Northeast right now. Like I literally have slept on conference room floors to see a project through on time. Like, Damn. are you kidding me? Like, you're talking to me because you don't like my, like, red tights? <laughs> well, he just, obviously, he was jealous and just needed a way to, like, try to put <laughs> you down. And couldn't do it, but based on your work, obviously. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah, people, are, it's like, in America, that's how it is. But that's why I love China. And, like, nobody cares. And nobody would do that, you know? And, uh, yeah, it's, it's just, I mean, China's really... Um, you know, better than the West in a lot of ways when it comes to like female relations, like how we treat females, you know, like, and I think that goes back to, you know, you know, Mao Zedong, who was like, you know, women are like half of the people who hold up the pillar of, you know, who hold up the sky. I don't, I forget exactly what the quote was, but he was like, yeah, you know, women are equal to men. Like, that's what he said. And that's pretty cool, you know? And so that, and like, and Mao is like, you know, he's like a god here. You see his face everywhere, you know? So there is not this, um, you know, misogynistic attitude towards women that you have in the West. Did you know what you were getting into, like, when you decided to move to China? Because you grew up in California, right? Yeah, like I said, it was just totally dumb luck. Like, you know, it's just like, it was something that, like, maybe, like, five years ago, I kind of looked looked around and was like, this is amazing. <laughs> I'm so lucky. <laughs> but yeah, like, I didn't go there because I was like, oh, nobody's gonna, you know, stare at my ass and tell me I can't wear hot pants. And like, I'm not, I don't have to go to my office. It was none of that stuff. Like, and in the beginning, I went to my office all the time until I figured out I didn't have to. <laughs> but yeah, but then I, you know, and I realized that nobody really cared as long as I was publishing. So uh, but yeah, I, I went there for completely other, re- other reasons. I actually had a boyfriend living in Beijing at the time, if we're going to be honest. But like, eh. Oh, it's about, you know, it's funny. It's usually people follow a boy to California, right? And you followed one to Beijing from yeah. California. <laughs> you always do things creatively, don't you? <laughs> Uh, I mean, I, I don't know, not really. I mean, I, I just, I don't know, I just do things how they are for me. I'm not, like, trying to be creative or, I don't know, I, like, my little sister and my big brother are far more creative, like, artistic types, you know, and uh, and my little sister has a very creative life. I think um, I think maybe I, it's, like, it's a relative, it's a it's it's about relative terms, you know. I'm, I'm creative for paleontologists, but really it's just, 
you know, most paleontologists, like everybody knows that if they went to China, that they would have an amazing career because there's just such fantastic material to work on, like not just dinosaur birds, but like, you know, even like some of the oldest mammals, you know, from Precambrian deposits in southern China, all the way to like, you know, the Peking man deposits, like we have it all when it comes to fossils, like just everything, like amazing things from, you know, this, this whole geologic you know time frame of when life existed on earth so i mean everybody knows that you can go to china and you'd have a lot of money to do your research and you'd have great fossils to work on but most people are just too afraid to go to china they just they just you know they want to stay in their comfort zone and uh, i guess maybe i've just never had a comfort zone like i've never felt comfortable with myself i mean I, f- I feel comfortable with myself now but when i left for china i did not and i mean i didn't i didn't really feel comfortable with myself till maybe like two years ago or something and it's you know but it, it's great it is it's all part of a journey to getting there you know um but maybe because i had i wasn't comfortable then it was easier for me to leave i don't know like but um but yeah like i you know all these people are like oh like you know they're smart people and they're like i can't get a job and it's been blah 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 and it's so difficult wah, wah. and i'm like come to china and they're just like yeah i'd rather be unemployed in america and i'm like you're lame and uh, it's only the only person who's ever taken me up on it and came to came to beijing is my current postdoc uh, her name her name is alida bayol uh, she grew up in Tahiti, but she's French, obviously. And uh, yeah, she you know came out and she adapted faster than any foreigner I've ever seen at the IVPP. She you know, and she's doing great here. I mean, it's probably because you know she's also she never lived in one place her whole life. She grew up in Tahiti, then when she did her master's in in Paris, and then did her PhD in Montana, then did a postdoc in Misery. You know, so like she's been all over. So it was easier for her to adapt. You know, but yeah, but it's been great for her. Like every paper that she's published since she's arrived like you know the first one was published in nature communications like a top 10 journal uh there's another one coming out in like a week that's coming out in the proceedings of the national academy of sciences number three journal you know so like it's been good for her right you know it wasn't just like you know it wasn't just that she's not you know unemployed or she wasn't she was never unemployed but she just uh you know was in a crappy um program before but uh yeah i mean so it's it, it does work out for people but people are just too afraid to make that leap is it China specifically, or is it the idea of uprooting mm-hmm. themselves from everything that they know to be familiar and just moving somewhere totally different? I think it's both. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely people want to stay in their comfort zone. Um, people don't like the challenge, you know, but I think also China is a really scary place to people. And you can't blame them for that. Like the Western media, um, you know, for example, even that, like, you know, South Park is now banned in China, right? And so I watched that episode uh, just to, you know, I wanted to see why they got banned because I used to like South Park. I haven't watched it in like 10 years, but I was like, I'm going to watch this episode. And it was just like, some of it was funny, but some of it was like, that's not what China is like. Like you have no idea what it's like here. And they're portraying this ugly picture. Like they were showing this like montage of like, police brutality and i'm like i can't even tell if like 50 percent of those are actually in china a and b that looks like an average week in la so like get off your fucking high horse and like you know get over yourself like i mean but every country has its flaws and its strengths and its weaknesses and like when i get in a cab and the driver will always like you know look at you like oh you're a foreigner and they always ask like where are you from and i'm i'm from america and then like so commonly they ask me like where is better china or america like which country is better 
and I always tell them, you know, like, there's good and bad and everything. <laughs> you know, like, but, uh, but it's true, you know, like every place has its positive aspects and its negative aspects. Like, and it's also true, like, you know, on every level, you know, from like a country down to a city, down to individual people, like everybody has its their good sides and their bad sides. Everything has its good sides and bad sides. So I'm not like, you know, trying to be like, China's best place in the world. Like, obviously, there's some issues, you know, like terrible pollution and, uh, you know, but also China, you know, America also has its issues. And I just think, um, I know I had this tattoo on my back and uh, in China, it's actually, I originally wanted the Michael Jackson quote, if you want to make the world a better place, take a look at yourself and make a change. Uh, but in the end, I ended up getting a Confucius quote, which actually is like the same thing. It just means, it says, which means, improve yourself peace under the sky because it's the idea that if everybody just tried to be the best that they could be then the world would be a better place and i think it's also the same like sorry i'm getting all political but it's the same about countries you know if every country was just working on itself the way china is china is really working to self-improve itself to get rid of its pollution to move to sustainable energy like to you know have greater food safety for its citizens blah 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 blah, blah. then you know maybe we would have less issues than all these countries who are like let me go to this other place and give you democracy even though we're not a democracy, we're a republic. You know, it's like, what the hell? But anyway, sorry, total tangent. <laughs> no, I but I think it's fascinating because, I mean, I think some even the things that you're talking about at a really high level, like where China is trying to make improvements, like how far would I have to search through newspapers and the press and the media to even get an inkling of that? I mean, I think you're right in terms of how different countries are portrayed is it's like funhouse mirrors these days yeah it's become so grossly apparent to me recently because um this year i went to mexico on vacation and you know i was like a little bit worried i was like oh my god we're gonna get killed uh mostly because my <laughs> boyfriend got those locos tattooed on his legs i made him put tape on them the entire <laughs> i don't want to get killed by gangbangers but anyways um you know we got there and it was just the most amazing place and so, like, I mean, yeah, I'm sure there's certain areas where there's, like, the drug cartel, you know, but it was just, it was amazing, and everyone was so nice, and everything was, you know, the beaches were the cleanest I've seen in the world, cleaner than European beaches, like, and, you know, when I talk to locals about it, they're just like, yeah, you know, you, like, take, you keep your house clean, you keep your environment clean, like, duh, you know, and it was just such a nice place, and none of, none of the things that you see in Western media, like, I remember last time, or like, I was in LA, it wasn't the last time, but I was in LA sometime, and, you know, my dad gets LA Times, and there was an article that was, like, Mexico, it's worse than you think. And it's like, oh, fuck off, you know? And then, like, you know, the last article I saw online about Iran was like, Iran just passed a law so you can have, you can get married to your daughter. Like, Iran's fucked up, you know? And then I just had two friends who went to Iran, like, just a couple weeks ago, and they were, you know, they loved it. And they're two gay guys from China, and they had an amazing time. And everyone was so nice, and they loved it. So it's just like, you know, everything in the media is out there in order to manipulate the way we think and to make us think a certain way. So I don't read the news at all. Of course, like you get, you glean things just from like being on the internet, you know, like you go on Facebook, people are posting about stuff. You walk by your dad's newspaper, you happen to see a title, an article, you know, but I do not read the news because 
I know it's just trying to brainwash me, A, and B, it's all just trying to like instill you with fear and, and, and anxiety and sadness. And, you know, one of my friends, he's constantly reading the news and then just getting super depressed. And I'm like, why are you still reading the news? Why? Like, why are you self-flagellating yourself? I know the world sucks. I don't need to read about it every goddamn day. That's not going to help anything, you know? Just, uh, yeah, sorry. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I feel like I wrestle this all the time because, like, what's the appropriate, like, being informed and, like, understanding, like, what's going on outside of my own little, like, narcissistic universe, right? But then also, like, I, I feel like I would rather spend my time contributing to change on a local level that's actually going to begin to do something as opposed to just to your point like the mental masturbation and self-flagellation of reading the news right I mean yeah I like it's very important to me that I be a good person like I know I have flaws for sure but I'm always working on them and I try to be somebody who's a positive you know, whoever I interact with, it's a positive experience. I want to make the world a better place, but I don't think reading the news is going to help me do that in any way. So Jingmei, this show, we often talk about bullshit and burnout. I, I feel like, do either of these words resonate for you? And do you have any stories around it? Fortunately, I haven't um, yet burned out. <laughs> but of course, like, you know, there's a lot of bullshit in academia. Like, I mean, if you're an academic listening out there, you know that like academia is nasty, you know, like people are vicious with each other. And it's because, you know, there's a very limited funding and these funding sources and there's, and there's limited jobs also. And so they like pit us against each other, you know, and so and because of this, everybody you know, we treat each other terribly. And there's like this, this really nasty, like pit of vipers kind of aspect to academia. So, you know, how do I how do I deal with this? Because, you know, you'll sometimes submit submit a paper, and it comes back with reviews, you know, and the reviews are just like, you know, they're mean, you know, and they're not even factual, you know. And uh, I used to like get so upset. But now what I do, and it really helps me like calm down and like process it is like, you know, when you resubmit a paper, you have to have a response to all the reviewers' comments. So what oh. I'll often <laughs> yeah. like, so wait, as a scientist you get trolled and then you have to respond to all the trolls. Yes. And uh and it used to be like it used to be something that was really hard for me. And even as a grad student, like I would get these, you know, evil reviews. And I remember once like crying in my office just like and my my advisor very awkwardly trying to comfort me and just being like, oh you know, like because like, you know, he's you know, less sensitive to me than me. And also he'd been in the game so much longer. Maybe he forgot about those type of feelings. But yeah, I was crying and I didn't want to do it anymore. So I mean, I, I guess you could call that burnout, you know, like, but it only happened to me in grad school. But uh, yeah, and, um, and it was just so hard to deal with. But now my my secret for dealing with this, also, I hope my colleagues aren't listening. <laughs> <I'll> like, <laughs> when I do my first pass, re- like to these responding to the reviewers, I am so nasty i'm just like i i write it out just being like fuck you you fucking piece of shit <laughs> and i just like i vent you know and i just like i'm like you're so fucking stupid how do you not know this shit blah, blah, blah. like you're wrong like motherfucker you know just like i vent and usually as i'm typing it like if you're in the room you know like you i'm just like typing 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 furiously and then all of a sudden you'll hear me be like fucker you know and then just like type, 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 so type, is this type, where type, the keys are like <laughs> flying off the keyboard <laughs> yeah pretty much and then you know and that like allows you to get get it all out, you know? And then a couple days later, I go back and I, you know, revise it to be 
polite and calm and uh you know and then and that way by this point a couple days later like i've gotten all that that like you know that anger out of me and then i can you know then you can respond in a way that's like appropriate but i think it's really important to like get it out if some people might suppress it right but i think it's important to to get your feelings out because otherwise they're just gonna like you know just brew inside you but then a, a lot of other people would just like write very snarky responses and i don't think that's very good either so i think it's like important to like get it out and then you know and then to come back you know when you're calm and you have all the emotions like you know that you've released the emotion and you can handle the you know handle the responses in an appropriate manner that uh yeah and that's that's been really helpful for me to like you know just deal with the fact that people can be very nasty to each other but um another thing that like you know in our field you know there's so many people who are you know, who will steal data from each other or who, you know, will belittle other people, do really mean things, you know, in academia. And I don't know, I just want to say to everyone out there who's had to deal with this, like, I'm not like, you know, I know it's difficult to, you know, confront these situations, but the fact is we need to confront them. Otherwise, they will just continue to persist, you know. So, like, you know, openly share data with anybody who wants it. And I really want to create this like new type of academic interaction where we're kind to each other and we don't see each other as, um, you know, enemies or like the or competition. And we just realize that we're all part of this like larger unit, just trying to like strive for greater knowledge for humanity. And, you know, and I know that one day this might come bite me in the ass and somebody who I share unpublished data with and say like please don't you know I'll show it to you but I'm working on it please don't publish it like somebody's one day is gonna screw me and they're gonna publish it you know and like I think about this I kind of worry about it I'm like I really hope it doesn't turn me against everyone you know like become embittered against like I'll never share data with anybody ever again like motherfuckers that kind of thing and I really I really hope that that doesn't happen but let me tell you whoever steals that data I will make sure that everyone <laughs> knows that they cannot be trusted and that they're a piece of shit and I think we need to do this like there need to be consequences for people's actions because nowadays most people don't say anything they're like oh yeah that advisor you know like he treated me like shit maybe he groped me whatever whatever but I'm just going to like keep my nose down. I'm not going to say anything. I just need to graduate. And then, you know, like, I'm just not going to say anything. I don't want any trouble. But it's like, that just means that that person is going to continue on with their bad behavior, you know? And so I just, I think if we want things to change, we need to make each other aware of people's actions. And it's not like, I'm not like, it's not like tattle. I know it sounds like you're tattling on someone or thinking on someone, but really like how else are people going to know? And how else are we going to, force people to change the way they behave unless we share information with each other so i don't know i just uh and i know it's hard so yeah but uh i hope everybody finds the strength inside them to be able to stand up to all these various bullies that persist in our society <laughs> well especially it sounds like the way you're describing it and i'm not an academic by any stretch of the imagination but it it seems like it's baked into the culture like it's systematized at this point so it's it seems like it's hard to bring those experiences forward especially if it's like you're getting like sexually harassed or sexually assaulted which we know happens to women all the time across all fields it's scary and it's hard in its own right but it seems like it's such a pervasive part of the system in academia, right? Like, oh, well, it's okay that he groped 10 people because, you know, he's the most published person, like, in this field. 
but it's pervasive because no one does anything to stand up against it. Like no, like if if somebody would just say something, then it would stop. But nobody wants to say anything, and I don't. I mean, I understand that you don't want this attention, you don't want to be associated with this, but like, if we want things to change, because there's so much right now in like social media or whatever about how we need to change and we need to make, you know, like things need to be different, but things are not going to be different just because you went to, uh, you know, some rally and you waved a sign. Things are going to be different if we force there to be consequences for bad behavior. So like, that's, I mean, it's the only thing I think that is really going to change things. And I think, and it will change things if we just, you know, if we like, if, if a colleague is known to be doing something, the rest of the community can ostracize them, you know. But if nobody says anything and only a few people who are close to whoever, you know, the bad thing happened to, only they know, then that other person will just continue being a jerk to like future generations. And I mean, I don't really expect the older generations to change, you know. It's kind of like we just got to wait for them to die out. But, you know, we can you know, we can get the 86 of them from our field a lot faster if we, like, you know, force there to be consequences for their behavior, you know? Like, there was a, a professor in the UK somewhere who had, like, a, a million-pound grant, and uh, he, it got, he got his grant taken away for bullying his students, you know? So there can be consequences, but only if these students speak up, you know? And unfortunately, he's still a professor, which I don't know how that's happening, but, like, at least there was consequences, and it, there was actually an article published in Nature, like, you know, being like, this guy was a bully and his money was taken away. Like, so, I mean, everybody knows now that he sucks, right? So that's good. Like, people won't work with him. There's not going to be, like, some student who just reads his paper and is like, oh, this guy looks like a good researcher and just, like, blindly walks into that situation. You know what I mean? So, yeah, I'm, like, that's that's always, it's my, it's, you know, it's like a little punchline that, like, I stole from actually a Key and Peele episode. I mean, my little sister always say it. It's like, consequences. And right now, <laughs> it's just not consequences for most people's <laughs> bad behavior. Or it had, to, you know, maybe people reading that magazine or that publication now know, like, oh, not only did he, like, is he totally embarrassed in this magazine, but, oh, look, he lost all of his funds to work with. Like, maybe people will start to learn by osmosis, right? Yeah, but that's only because that article was published, you know? If, like, if it had just been, you know, so now everyone knows. But I'm saying, so that's good. That's what I'm saying. But most of the time, people don't know. And, like, I, when I applied for grad school, my undergrad advisor, who is amazing, Dr. Donald Prothero, he did so much to help me be, uh, get where I am. And he's also the one who first introduced me to paleontology. So that's why I'm a paleontologist. But anyways, when we were applying for grad school, he made us a list of like every single program in the United States where you could study paleo. And he listed like the pros and cons and what you needed to do to get into that program. Like if you needed to take certain GRE, you know, um, test or whatever, you know, and one of them, like he'd been like, Oh, oh don't go to the un this university because of this uh, professor there is like, you know, a philanderer or whatever. And you know, he knew this people, some people knew, but it didn't come out until like 10 years later, that guy got fired. So like, you know, he was right, you know, cause I remember being like, that's weird, but like, <laughs> turns out he was right, but it took 10 years longer of probably more people being harassed before that person was finally brought down. And if somebody had just said something in the beginning, you know, like that would have saved 10 years of students from that kind of you know, experience. Trauma. <laughs> so, yeah. So we need, and like, but I'm just, and the reason I'm saying it is because most, like when I talk to people who've had shitty experiences, 
99% of the time, they're just like, oh, I, don't, I don't want any trouble. I don't want any trouble. I'm not going to do anything about it. It's like, come on, man. Like, there needs to be consequences, not just like talking shit to your personal, like to your, you know, close friends, which, yes, of course, do. Like, re- you know, like lean on your friends for support, but like, it needs to be known. Otherwise, things will never change. I guess we have spun this conversation all over the place. And I guess I want to ask before we part ways today, what do you most want La Vital Core Salon listeners to know or to take away from our conversation or your work or lessons that you've you've picked up in life? Um, well, I think just, you know, I know it sounds super cheesy. Basically, everything, everything I would say, like, as I like a wrap it up thing is probably going to be super cheesy. But yeah, I mean, listen to yourself and be kind to yourself and, and do what's good for you. And then and just try to do the best you can and be a good person. And if you do these things, no matter what you do, you're going to be successful. You know, like that's I'm you know, the reason I'm a successful paleontologist is because, you know, I'm passionate. I love what I'm doing. And I just try to do it as best I can. And that's really all, the, all you can ever ask of somebody. So if you do that, you know, it's like, I think that's all you really need to be a happy, successful person. But I also think that, like, there's so much division in our world, you know, about, like, oh, we have to protect, like, women in science or we have to, you know, or that country is evil or whatever, whatever. And I think that, like, we need to step away from all these divisions and really look at ourselves as, like, humanity as a whole, you know? Like, it's something that kind of bothers me with, like, all this, like, promoting women in STEM because... It's like, I get it, like, you know, like, women have had a hard time, so now it's like, you know, like, and that, yeah, women did have a hard time, and yes, things should change, but it shouldn't just flip to the other side, where now it's like, let's just blindly promote women over men, you know, like, because that is just going to breed resentment from the younger generation of male scientists or whoever who are also trying to succeed, and they're going to be like, this isn't fair, you know, that female's research wasn't as good as mine but you know because she's a woman she got something over me like that's just not going to help anything you know so I just think that like if we want the world to be a better place if we want to be people who are happy and feel good about ourselves we just really need to like shift the way that we you know view everything and just I don't know like bring back spirituality like looking inside yourself and like and realize and spirituality like is about how everything is interconnected and if we see that then I think we'd be able to, you know, make choices and like live in a way that we'll be happy and the world will be a better place. You know, like every what's good for the individual is good for the greater whole, you know. And I think, yeah, I just think we all need to shift the way that we perceive ourselves and perceive the world. And perceive that interconnectedness. I so believe that is so deeply important. And I'm so glad that you mentioned that because I think sometimes we think about the individual and the collective group and as two different things that never the two shall touch, right? But yeah. But they are so deeply interconnected. Like you can't separate the two. Yeah, definitely. Oh, Jing Mei, thank you so much for sharing your work, sharing who you are, sharing your opinions, not being afraid to do it. It was such a blast to have you here. Thank you so much. It was really fun chatting with you. And thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to, you know, share my thoughts with a, oh, an audience of, you know, really cool, powerful people out there. Thank you again.
Whew. Wasn't that a fun and thought-provoking conversation? Isn't Jingmei a total badass? Hopefully you also got some badass ideas that you can incorporate into your own life. Just because Jingmei is talking about paleontology doesn't mean there aren't some hard-won lessons there. So if you dig what she shared or you dig this podcast, please show your support by sharing this podcast with one woman you know and subscribing to the podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. That could be Apple Podcasts. That could be Google Play. It could be Spotify. There's so many places to listen to podcasts, but please subscribe where you're hanging out. Before we all bounce back into our days, just want to give a quick shout out to Brandy Morris for sending over the idea that became this podcast. My producer, Craig Snyder, who's also my husband, who I adore. My virtual assistant, Darlene Victoria, and Rishi Deer of Elephant Stone and the High Dials for the theme song. One more thing. Don't forget, you deserve a life spiked with passion and slathered with joy. Don't let bullshit or burnout stop you. Stop you.